Well, if you were to think back in your mind as far back as you can remember, what would be your first Christmas memory? Your first Christmas memory. I can remember mine. It was 50 years ago this year. I was five years old. So do the math. I'm 55. 50 years ago this Christmas, it was a very, very strange and wonderful Christmas for one particular reason. Was it a a particular gift that I got? No, it wasn't. I don't remember what I got that Christmas. Was it a religious experience of of, uh, children singing and bells ringing and being at church? No, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. My brother is seven years older than I, so I was in kindergarten. He's in grade seven. And at at his school over the Christmas break, they had a particular animal there that they didn't know what to do with over the Christmas holidays. And so my brother volunteered to bring this animal home to our house. And I don't know how my mother possibly agreed to this, but she did. And so it was quite awesome to have a monkey in our house at Christmas time. Yes, a real live squirrel monkey. It's about this big. And if you don't believe me, I have pictures. I could show you next week. Yeah, about this big. We had a monkey, the cage, everything. And so we are looking inside the cage at this beautiful, cuddly squirrel monkey at Christmas time and feeling sorry for it that it's caged. And so we decided we would let it out. That's a big mistake. You never want to let a squirrel monkey out in a 800 square foot, two bedroom apartment. But we did. And so we let the squirrel monkey out of the cage and it was complete chaos. As you can imagine, this monkey pinballing around off furniture, up the Christmas tree, down the Christmas tree, along the curtain rods. And it was awesome until it wasn't when he had pretty much destroyed everything. The Christmas tree was on the ground. There were broken bulbs and lights and it was complete chaos in the house. And once he tired himself out, he was back in the cage and we didn't let him out again until after Christmas break when he was brought back to the school. But all that to say, that is my first Christmas memory. And I don't know what yours would be, but that is mine 50 years ago this Christmas. It was awesome, but it also was terrible. And the monkey stank. If you've ever been around monkeys, you know the monkeys stink. And when I go to a zoo... You don't have to tell me where the squirrel monkeys are. I can smell them before I see them because of that memory so long ago. And that's the way a lot of people view Christmas, that it stinks and that it's chaos. And there can be many different reasons for that. Of course, there is the remembrance of people perhaps who have passed on. They're still bereaved. They're grieving this loss. They're remembering all the memories that they had with this person and now there are going to be no more Memories with that person, and that is hurtful. It hurts. There's other reasons too. There's some even Christian groups that don't celebrate Christmas. Some even Reformed Christian groups that stay clear away from Christmas. And so there's many different reasons that people have for not wanting to enjoy the holidays. But I do like, regardless of where you land on Christmas or enjoying the season, not enjoying it, wishing it would just pass by, but I do appreciate what Charles Spurgeon said about Christmas when he was asked about it, thinking of all the consumerism, the greed, the gluttony, the drunkenness that is associated with Christmas. Charles Spurgeon was asked about Christmas and he said this, it's here, let's live with it and use it to exalt Christ. And that I would agree with. Let's use it to exalt our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is our aim this morning as we look at this at this passage that we have here in Hebrews. And we see 
that Hebrews is a book written to show us the superiority, the suppression the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, of who he is. And it's written to Jews who are at a crossroads. Are they going to go back to Judaism or are they going to press on with the Lord Jesus Christ? And so the writer here wants to indicate to them that it would be foolish to go back when all that is presented to us in the Lord Jesus Christ that we see here unfolded in these few verses and throughout this book, if they were to go back knowing what there is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls them to to commit themselves entirely to Jesus Christ and to push forward uh, with that relationship of who he is. And he does that firstly by telling us that God has spoken. God is a speaking God. And he does that in verse 1. Long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God has spoken to us. It's a wonderful thing to consider. God has spoken to us in general revelation in the created order. And he's also spoken to us in his word, the special revelation that we have here. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is God breathed. God is speaking to us. It is God breathed. And we see God speaking all the way back in the Old Testament through the prophets We see him speaking to Moses. We see him speaking to Adam and Eve. We see him speaking throughout the prophets, speaking to the prophets, speaking through the prophets to the people. And God used different people. He used different ways to do that. Dreams, visions, all kinds of different things. Uh, Prophecies. It was all God speaking. And we see 2 Peter 1.21 that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God spoke to them and they spoke to the people in many times and in many ways. God was revealing himself to man. God is a God who speaks. If God didn't speak into this world, we would not be able to know who he is. But because God is a speaking God who wants to make himself known to us, he spoke into this world. And what happens when we try to reach God on our own? We get different cults and religions. That's what happens. When we, don't, when we don't look at God's revealed word to us, God's special revelation to us, then we get all off track on different ways of trying to reach God that come to dead ends. And so we see the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ spoken of in the Old Testament, in the prophets. They are always pointing us to who Christ is as a coming promised Savior. And we not only have God's word, but we have the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Special revelation. We see in the first part of verse 2 here that God has spoken to us by his Son. But in these last days, now when are the last days? The last days are from Christ's first advent unto his second advent, his second coming. That is the last days. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The fulfillment now of all what God has to say in the Lord Jesus Christ. The finality of what God has to say in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to look for further revelations. We have all that we need in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ unfolded in our New Testaments. 
Every prophet pointed forward to the future. And now in the New Testament, we see those types and shadows fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the appointed time, God spoke very emphatically through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love how the time is so important. The timing of Christ's birth, the timing of His coming, the timing of the second coming, all of these times that we see indicated at the right time God sent His Son into this world. And we see here seven different characteristics, seven different summaries about the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is. And the first one is that He's been been appointed the heir of all things. Appointed the heir of all things. I've heard this described that the Old Testament says that Christ is coming. The four Gospels say that Christ is here. The book of Acts and the epistles describe for us the Christ who has come. And the book of Revelation tells us the Christ who is coming. And when He comes, everything that He created as the heir of all things are going to go back to Him. The rightful owner. The heir of all things. If you ever wonder where in the world this world is going, it's going back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the rightful heir of all things. And that is made clear in chapter 2 of this book and made clear in many other places that all peoples, places, nations will be brought into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, every nation will bow its knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of history, the supremacy of who the Lord Jesus Christ is will be unfolded for every man, woman, and child to see. The exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that exists, exists for Jesus Christ. And when He returns, He will reign in sovereign majesty and rule with all authority in this world. And the second thing we see is that He created the world. He created the world. Christ spoke the worlds into being. We see in John chapter 1, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. And a wonderful passage in Psalm 33. By the, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Christ, the Creator of all things. Jesus Christ, on six consecutive days, spoke all of the world and all that it contains into existence. Amazing power in the created order that we see. And then we see also that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, the radiance of the glory of God. We see this also relayed to us in John 1 and verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is not just the reflection of who God is. He is very God of very God. He is God. He is the reflection, the full and perfect radiance of the Father's glory. Glory is a reference here to the entirety of deity. All that God is, Christ is. His incomprehensibility, His power, wisdom, glory, all that God is, Christ is. The sum total of who God is in His holiness and righteousness 
are all radiated through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in keeping with that, fourthly, we see here that He is the exact imprint of His nature. The exact imprint of His nature. You will recall in ancient times where kings had a signet ring and they would drip onto a document to close it, to seal it. They would drip wax and then that signet ring would be pressed into the wax. And so you knew if you received that letter that it was from the king. That was the imprint of the signet ring of the king. And that is kind of the idea that is relayed to us here. This word, the exact imprint, is used of the wax seal or of a coin that perfectly matches the dye that it comes from. Perfectly matches. And so really what this is saying is that Jesus is the same in his being, substance, nature, essence as the Father. That Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That they are equal. And so in radiance of God's glory, Jesus is the same as the Father. Christ is the same, fully God, fully man, the Savior of the world. And that becomes very, very important as we move along here in this text. And I'm sure you don't need to be convinced of the deity of Christ, but if you want a few verses to look up, Titus 2.13, where Christ is called our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.20, where He is called the true God and eternal life the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is God in human flesh. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He upholds all things by the word of His power. The Son is the sustainer of all things. Jesus actively holds everything up. He's not detached from His created order. He's not like the deists who say that that God kind of at creation wound up a clock, put it on the mantle, and He's going to forget about it until that clock winds down in the consummation of all things. That's not God. That's not our God. He's intimately acquainted with everything going on in this world. Jesus Christ is active in creation, making sure that it stays together. And we're going to talk more about that in our conclusion in a couple of minutes. But also Christ made purification for our sins. And this is where the deity of Christ becomes so important to us. That Christ as God can make sacrifice and purification for sins. Christ is God in human flesh. Therefore, He alone is able to make purification for our sins. No one else can reconcile us to God. No priest can do it. No prophet can do it. No angel can do it. Christ alone can make purification for sins. And purification means to remove all impurities by washing. Christ washes us clean. It means to cleanse from dirt and pollution, that sin which is in our hearts. And this speaks of the depravity of man, that in sin we have been conceived and born and live, that we are sinners, we are depraved, we are corrupt, we are defiled, and we need the Lord Jesus Christ to wash us and cleanse us and purify us from all sin. And we see that word here, sins, is in the plural. Christ takes all of our sins, not some of them. He takes all of your sin and guilt and shame, past, present, future, all of it, and He gives us His very righteousness. We call this imputation. Christ takes all of our sins away, all of them, sins, not sin, sins. You've confessed your sins to Christ, He's taken all of them. And he's imputed to you his righteousness. What a wonderful doctrine we have in the imputation of Christ. Isaiah 118, Though your sins are like scarlet, 
they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Wool. Purity. Purified. Like wool. So there is only one way of purification. The Lord Jesus Christ. And when He made purification for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This means He's finished. He's seated. His work is done. In the Old Testament, we see that the priests were always standing. They were always making continual sacrifice. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice once for all, that when we receive that one sacrifice, we are purified and cleansed by the blood and sacrifice, that atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he is seated. His work is finished. He cried out on the cross, it is finished. And now he is seated at the right hand of God, the place of highest honor, greatest authority, supreme power, the right hand of power. He sat down, it was finished. No more sacrifices to be made. And then we see here in verse 4, Christ is superior to the angelic hosts. And that is unfolded for us through the remainder of this chapter. But Christ is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. He is our prophet who reveals, a priest who reconciles, and he is our king who reigns and rules. Christ is not subject to anyone or anything. He is superior to the angels as is demonstrated by the fact that they worship him. If you look down into verse 6, let all the angels worship him. All the angels are to worship him. And he's not subject to any prophet. The prophets were subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that truly he is our prophet, priest, and king, and he rules with all authority in this world. And so a couple of encouragements uh, for us as we go on with our Lord's Day couple of exhortations for you to take with you and the first is this that when we look at this letter of the book of Hebrews and we see that it is written to a people who are told about the supremacy of Christ who are at a crossroads in their life who they're either going to go forward with Christ or they are going to go back to Judaism the author tells them how foolish that would be to go back when all concerning Christ has been laid before them. And a few of those things have been laid before us. And there might be some of you here this morning, some of you watching online or listening online, who are at a crossroads in your life. You're wondering if you are going to press on with Christ. You're wondering if you're going to go back to your old ways and old habits and old life. And I want to encourage you this morning to not do that. To press forward with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were at a crossroads. You may be as well. And as we look at these things concerning Christ, we have to sit back and wonder, what child is this? What child is this? Who was born in a manger and then who grew to do all these great and wonderful things on our behalf. And Ray Stedman said, all that God wants to say to us has been said. And it is only up to us to hear, to heed what He says. Are we listening to God speaking? God is a God who speaks and He speaks to us most clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks to us by His Holy Spirit through the Word of God. 
God has spoken. Hebrews 2.1, therefore. It says, therefore. So based on chapter 1 and all that's unfolded there, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. To those things that we have heard from a God who speaks. Those things that we have heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 3, 7, therefore, again, based on what's said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, again, the God who speaks, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't harden your hearts to what God wants to do and say in your life. Hebrews 12, 25, see that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. God has spoken. Are we listening to what God has to say to us? Are we listening to the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ? As we know, uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, said that Christ would be a lunatic or a devil of hell to say what he says and not be who he said he was. He would be a lunatic or the devil of hell to say those things. And he goes on, Lewis says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. It's my prayer that if you have not done so, that you would do so today, that you would press on with the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would call Him Lord and Savior this morning, that you would fall on your face and worship Him. And then secondly, that phrase upholds the universe by the word of His power. Inherent within that holding up of the world is the holding up of you. Christ holds you up sustains you as you walk in this world and all the trials and the difficulties. And just follow this timeline with me for one second. The Lord Jesus Christ created all things. He's going to come back. He's going to inherit all things. But it's not just the beginning of time and the end of time. It's all of time and everything in between. And it's your time too that He upholds. He will sustain you. Your times are in His hands. He upholds. It's a present tense. He upholds. He's active in His creation. He's active in your life. Every moment, every day, He undergirds and sustains the universe and He undergirds and sustains you as a child of His. There's nothing random or outside of His control in this universe. There's no rogue molecules in this universe. And there's nothing random or out of control about your life despite the chaos that might be in it sometimes, God is in it with you. He will uphold you. And we know these things theologically. We can look into verses and we can talk about these things, but I can almost guarantee you, just like some of those people that hate and detest Christmas because of that great cloud of depression that comes over them, that discouragement that comes over them at this time of year because of past situations, bereavements, Uh, regrets, whatever it might be. This time of year that should be filled with joy is not for some people. And so we need to acknowledge that and remember even ourselves when we are tempted to think that God is distant, 
that God has abandoned us, that Jesus Christ might be uphold, uh, might be upholding this world, but he slacked off in upholding me. I want to assure you he is not. Christ is never slack in upholding his promises. He will ensure every one of them concerning you will be fulfilled. But let's just play that game for one brief moment here. Let's think that Christ did slack off. What if he slacked off in his upholding of the world? We know that the surface temperature of the sun is around 6,000 degrees Celsius. Think about that. 6,000 degrees Celsius, the surface of the sun. So if we were just a little bit closer, we'd all be fried and dead. If we were a little further away, we'd all be frozen and dead. But Christ upholds this this world with the word of his power. And then think about the earth tilted on 23, approximately 23 and a half degrees on its axis. What if all of a sudden it tipped to 90 degrees? Christ was slack in upholding this universe. All of a sudden, 90 degrees. I no scientist again, but I think we'd all be dead. We'd all be dead if Christ lifted his hand of upholding this world off of this world. And so the precision and detail we see in the created order should give us great confidence in our lives. And we see Jesus Christ using the argument of the lesser and the greater in Matthew chapter 6, where he talks about those sparrows that fall to the ground and how much more precious we are than those sparrows. Much more precious we are than the created order. And so Christ says to us, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That right hand of power, he will uphold you by. He upholds the universe, and he upholds you, and he will never, never let you go. And so we read about that in Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 27. Jesus uses that argument of the lesser to the greater. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life. Our times are in his hand. He upholds us by the right hand of power. Should Christians celebrate Christmas? Yes, I believe we should, and we should use it to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator. He is the heir of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's provided a way of purification for our sins, and he will uphold us with his righteous right hand. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your sustaining power that you uphold us by your righteous right hand. Lord, we are so unworthy of all that this passage tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And there may be people here, people watching, listening that don't know you, and we pray that they would know you and that they would not just look at Christ and the wonder of Christmas as, as, as Christ in a manger, but they would look to you as their exalted Lord, the living Lord of the universe who's intimately acquainted with each one of us. And also, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who find Christmas a struggle. I 
pray and ask, Lord, that you would bless them this Christmas season, that the focus that they have on troubles and regrets and bereavements, that they would shift that focus onto the greatness and the glory of the Savior that we have. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.